Greetings, dear listeners, and welcome to Real Skiers with Jackson Hogan. Greetings, dear listeners. In this episode, I continue with part three of my four-part interview with the legendary filmmaker Greg Stump. I refer to this segment as part two in the intro, (laughs) but in fact, it's the third. We go into highly illuminating detail about Stump's filmmaking career from its origins up to the eve of his greatest triumph, The Blizzard of Oz. Allow me a moment to remind you that my weekly revelation, otherwise known as a newsletter, which is posted on realskiers.com every Tuesday, is always free, as are these podcasts, which I hope some of you will listen to on our free public site in order to bolster my visitation stats. The podcast can also be heard on Spotify and iTunes, among other outlets. And now, part three of The Stump Chronicles. Hello, Gregory Stump, and welcome to This Is Your Life. Part two. <laughs> Hi, thank you, Jackson, dear boy. Good to be with you. Oh, it's always a pleasure. Always a pleasure. Well, last we spoke, we were talking about the golden aura of the Whistler time. You had like seven years living in certainly ski bum nirvana. The word idyllic, I remember being bandied about quite a bit, at least on this end. And in this instance, I want to back up a bit. That's more or less at the tail end of your ski movie-making career, but what about before your ski movie-making career? Where did you get your inspiration, and how did you make the transition from athlete being filmed to the one doing the filming? Well, and and just a side note, uh, I completed Groove Requiem in the Key of Ski, uh, P-Tex Lies and Duct Tape, and Fistful of Moguls uh, while I was in Whistler, condo. So I was still active especially the first couple years i was there and then in between p-tex and fistful of moguls in 99 so that would be probably five years that's when i was doing the commute to hollywood um not making ski movies but uh, commercials anyway back to your question what inspired me before i started making ski movies yeah i mean you were sought after by one dick barrymore to appear in a film that I'll allow you to attach a title to and your your co-stars in the era. You had had, you know, a heralded career in, in amateur freestyle and then I guess went on to doing some, you know, certainly some professional engagements, including ski shows and whatnot, performing before an adoring public. Of course, your greatest notoriety was not as someone being filmed, but as someone doing the filming. So I wanted to peel back the onion of time to that moment when you were the, the athlete and the athlete sort of bopping around wherever the, the great filmmaker was going and, and observing how Dick Barrymore went about his business. Exactly. Well, I, you know, as a skier and a competitive skier and freestyler, you know, of course, I, as a freestyler, you know, I just loved ski movies. And I didn't see a Warren Miller movie for quite a long time. I, I, the only reason I went because I was in it. So it would be like 83-ish four kind of thing previous to that i the first ski movie i ever saw was the performers and i remember exactly i was at sports house ski shop in bridgeton maine and the 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 movie i just loved the movie i loved the travelogue aspect of all the buddies on the road the k2 bus dick had some good music in there and you know it was great skiing but the thing that really struck me about that movie was those red white and blue bottoms on the k2 skis because i had just paid for and was picking up skis that i had laid away for a whole summer 
pair of K2 competitions with the black bottoms. So I just got these brand new K2s that were last year's K2s with black bottoms. And I go see the performers and I'm like, oh no. It, what? Cause I, at first I was like, is the ski upside down? What am I seeing? Because, you know, the, I think that was the first graphic on the bottom of a ski ever that Bobby Burns came up with. But I remember seeing that movie and just, you know, loving it, but being disappointed because I had, now I had a pair of brand new K2 comps, but they had black bottoms. They were the old ones. So I, just, I was very upset, but uh, that movie was great. And then uh, Roger Brown's Ski the Outer Limits. I saw that when it came out. I was actually afraid of that. It's a quite trippy it so... experience, especially if you see it as an impressionable youth. Yeah, well, I was probably 14 or 15, and my mom had beat into us a, a no-drug thing. And so I didn't smoke pot. I didn't do anything. I Maybe not so much for my mom's berating and scare tactics, but for the fact that I was an athlete. Anyway, I just I just didn't do it. So, so Brown's movie scared the it scared me. I remember thinking, whoa, that was scary. But the performers, I think, was a movie, the K2 performance, I think it might have been called, was a movie that I think really made freestyle just seem incredibly sexy. Yeah, exactly. That was the Ridge Bell. Ex an, an iconic sequence that you might say was responsible for freestyle becoming more than just a bash for cash sort of event. Yeah. Sure. And uh, John Clendenin, the immortal John Clendenin, in, in the bloom of his youth. <laughs> he could... do, you, do you imagine what a, what a one-man wrecking ball on women that oh. was? Oh, my Lord. <laughs> you imagine Clendenin in oh. his oh, well, I, well, I, <laughs> I'm able to withdraw in some rather vivid imagery that I'm not sure I want to terrify my podcast listeners with, with detailing. John is a very attractive human being, and at the time that he was a two-time world freestyle champion, he had more than his share of admirers. <laughs> and what was that? Was about seventy-four. Uh, seventy-four, seventy-five is definitely around around that epoch. Boy, that guy knew how to hang it out to dry in the air, and he was so fluid, and he's such an athlete. And of course, we know now as a instructor just how conscious all that development was. In other words, he wasn't just a preternatural athlete that knew how to fling himself in the air. Uh, he wasn't an acrobat, per se. He was an athlete. He was someone who, and he was a thinking athlete, who tried to break down the, why am I doing this and how am I able to do this? An admirable man, and of course, anybody who beats him can't fail to want to hang out with him. Well, and he, I didn't know this until a few years ago, but he told me that I didn't realize he was part of that Warren Witherall, Vermont, but whatever that was, U.S. ski team. Some, I don't, I don't even know exactly what it was. I just know it was serious racing. Um, and I, he was a part of. Well, that. let's get back to you and Barry Moore. I mean, enough about JC is a laudable <laughs> subject. But I'll, 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 I'll podcast JC some other time. Yeah, <laughs> you and and Barry Moore had a very wonderful relationship, and I think that certainly helped you to see the possibilities in another career for yourself. Talk about that time. Because I had done the Harry Leonard ski shows, which they don't do anymore. But for for those that don't know what those were, the Harry Leonard ski shows were these big ski shows, consumer shows in the major cities in Boston, McCormick Place, Chicago, uh, New York, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Detroit. These were, you know, it was a, it was a major tour. I mean, it was, you know, just, basically a traveling circus because we had big revolving deck 
came off the side of a semi trailer that Bill O'Leary and his buddy ran. Then we had another smaller duck that Holly Deist and I did a K2 demo on. So I'd, I'd done that whole tour. And then in the second to last stop, Dick Barrymore was in town. And of course, you know, Harry and Jerry Simon, all of that, you know, they're all buddies. I must have said something. They must have said, they must have told me Barrymore, we were going to go to dinner with Barrymore. And I go, oh man, I loved being in one of his movies. And they told Barrymore that at the ski show. So he went and checked me out on the deck. You know, I was, I was pretty much, well, very much so the best skier on the deck in the whole show with Bill O'Leary, wonderful guy compared to what we were doing in the amateurs at that time in ballet, which is what we could excel in. So I was really good on the deck. You do a 540 in the air on the deck, and that's really hard because edge setting on that carpet is not the same as... <laughs> no, that's... For, for, uh, so, for our listeners who don't know, that's quite an acrobatic feat. A carpet is basically moving against you on sort of this bristly surface that's mm, ski-like, ski-ish, <laughs> but certainly not a ski surface. If you fail, you're part of the scenery. <laughs> you just go off the back. There's a consequence to failure on that uh, seemingly benign surface. And just like falling off the back of a ski ramp, our conversation with Greg Stump has been dramatically and suddenly suspended by the powers that be. But it shall resume momentarily when we pick up the thread of the Stump Chronicles, part three. Welcome back, Herr Stumpf. Danke, We had podcasters interrupt us there. We're, we're back on track. What we were talking about was your experiences as a deck skier, and in fact, the, the best deck skier, one must admit, um, well, the Harry Leonard Travis. According to me. Only but, according to me. <laughs> of course. But this, this interview might be slightly tinged with your perspective. <laughs> um, I hope so. I, I think we were talking about the difficulty of doing aerial bow off the deck. J uh, Jackson, you're explaining how it's this big, endless carpet. Is right. I was lauding, in fact. You had mentioned a sort of offhand fashion that you could throw a 540 on this deck, saying, well, it's a bit tricky as a surface. It's not a bit tricky. It's a lot tricky. Included in the trickiness is that it's constantly rotating against you. And its desire in life is to throw you into the scrim or whatever it is that's behind it, which in fact is not designed to catch you, but just allow you to fall the 12 no. or 15 feet to the concrete below. So it's not as though this is an adventure lightly entertained. <laughs> Most people wouldn't try this. No, because these are they're not real ski. I mean, they're, they're, they're skis, but they have no edges there's no steel or any type of edge at all the base is just a, a big piece of teflon yeah magnificent right? and the, teflon, <laughs> the height of design you know <laughs> no because so demonstrating skiing on this and you weren't carving a turn by any imagination it was all faking it but you know skidding on that thing but as a ballet skier that was that's what we so did anyway. it is into this artificial milieu that walks dick barrymore Proceed. So he chucks me out on the deck, and he's he's like, "Well, obviously the kid can fucking ski." We went to dinner, and I I made sure I sat next to him at dinner. You connived um, to, sit, to, to, to sit next to him. Oh, I was not letting him out of my sight. No, I was gonna. I was Dick Barrymore. Are you kidding me? Gonna be full on pedal to metal self promotion. <laughs> <laughs> An instinct that remains alive to this day, ladies and gentlemen. But anyway, proceed. Tell them how you how you set the hook. Well, I think probably I, 
I had manners at the dinner and I, I wasn't rude or I hope I was affable. The thing I remember the most is he said, can you ski bumps? And I was like, yeah, I finished second at the nationals last year. Yeah, I love bumps. We went to Sun Valley to film there, but there was no snow that year. So we drove over to Jackson, Blake Barrymore, his son, myself and Holly Deist. I never skied powder snow out west in my life. So I'd never even skied powder. But Blake Barrymore showed me this really good tip. Like, you stick your tails in. So you're, you don't have to do anything except push forward and then get planing. And then just it's like skiing on the ground. And he was right because the footage looked great because I turned a lot. I'm little, so the snow looked really deep. (laughs) It did look deeper than it did on Blake. (laughs) And Dick, he was into it. He knew he was getting good stuff. Right there on that trip, he said, do you want to come to New Zealand and Australia with me this summer? Because I'm going to film a sequence. Do you think you can get sponsors for that? And I'm like, oh, yeah. (laughs) It was one call to Chris Hanna, one call to whomever, you know. And they're like, fuck yeah, Barrymore. Chris Hanna, by the way, was competition services manager at Solomon for all North American athletes. And there are only that many binding companies. And boy, there's a lot of demand on that time. And I happened to be his cohort in the boardroom, if we will. We were both mid-management folk at uh, Solomon in that era. I met Chris at the Solomon summer camp at Squaw Valley because he was there. and I was, I was a 14-year-old camper. So anyway, so I knew him. Yeah. Anyway, so getting sponsorship was, was easy, and I was you know, super psyched. We didn't have to leave till September, so I moved out to Colorado to Vail. Spent the summer there working at a record store and a radio station, KVMT. And then August 1st, drove to L.A. and uh, met Dick at LAX. So me, Scott Willingham, and Walt Hiltner went to Hawaii first because Barrymore had friends there. And I'd never been to Hawaii. I was like, oh, my God, this is great. Uh, and we shot a windsurf sequence there of the three of us trying to, to windsurf. And we have to take a lesson. Made, Dick made a little story out of it. And then he sh- cut to the killer footage of the people on the very newly done, uh, made short boards in Kailua Bay. But anyway, I did learn to windsurf there on an old stock windsurfer with the dagger board. And, you know, no harness, no straps. So that was great. And then we went to Tahiti. <laughs> and stayed there. Great ski week. film, by the way. So far, we got to the water well, destination. I know. Well, <laughs> I realized Dick knew people in all these first first two places. Right? In, in Tahiti, we're staying at his buddy's Bally High Lodge. Lodge, this beautiful hotel on the beach. With the reef was about a mile out, and it was about ten feet deep all the way that whole mile, and it was the most beautiful ocean coral i've ever seen in my life to this day but so anyway yeah but but dick knew these guys they were all his friends so yeah no, not much skiing then but that's part of the storyline is we were having so much fun that he had to fake a telegram from the cell <laughs> no it's in the movie it's his line great plot device it worked you know and then we went to false creek in australia and it's not very big. And, yeah, you know, it's not, not, we didn't really, I don't think he used any footage from there. A couple of turns, maybe, just established that we were there. But then we went to New Zealand and hit the South Island. And we got good snow and good weather, which and Barrymore warned us all at the very beginning. He goes, we could stay down there for the whole rest of the summer and not get one sunny day because I've done it. And you're like, it's really hit or miss with the weather. But we got super lucky and we got to film up in the Remarkables heli skiing. And it was, uh, 
you know, it wasn't deep snow, but it was just beautiful and sunny. And it's a great sequence in Vagabond Skiers. He ends the movie with it. Vagabond oh, Skiers. But, so that was, but I want to but, get the perspective in our listener's ear about the way Barrymore went about his business. Now, I don't just mean conning his friends into hosting all of his crew as he island hops across the Pacific, but rather about the South way he Pacific, went about baby. capturing the ski footage that he did and then the impression that that made on you. Uh, well, it was huge because he didn't use a tripod. With all the shoots I did with him, he just had this little rucksack and he had a wind-up Beaulieu 16-millimeter camera, which is a French camera, and I think it's got multiple turrets, and that was all. He, that's what he. That's what he had in his pack. And he's like, "No shit, I'm not carrying a billion pounds around." And you know, years later, I understood, and that was after my first back surgery, because <laughs> <laughs> uh, my pack was 75 pounds, and I carried a huge tripod and the Airy SR batteries, cans and cans of film. And then there's all those hangers on. I mean, they don't call them hangers on for nothing. They're always. <laughs> Always hanging on. No, we were well. We, we were pretty good with not attracting a crowd. Uh, well, that's not true. If we were shooting some place where we're set up, like Squaw Valley, we, we'd have a lot of people. But I, I think it was Barrymore's autonomy. I think that really. Yes, he was a one-man show. Um, so not only did he book, you know, he knew all the people. He knew where we were going. Um, had it all, you know, dialed. I don't recall a travel agent being involved. And then, you know, he shot everything himself. He did. There's no Sherpa carrying anything for him. In New Zealand, we did have a second uh, cameraman, Kenny Campbell, who I still see to this day. He shot us. Uh, so uh, Dick had a second angle in, in uh, New Zealand. And I think Kenny is from New Zealand or something. But anyway, so, but, but it was, you know, and then he went home and what's next? He goes, well, I'm going to go lay on the beach in Baja and think about how I'm going to put this together. Like, oh, that sounds smart. And then I go into the studio. I was there one time, but there was hundreds of cl clips of 16 millimeter film hanging from racks in the room with a little weighted piece on the bottom. So they just clips, but these were, pre-cut negative clips that were little bits that he wanted or shots that he wanted and he he glued them all together you know it was the old-fashioned way of of editing 16 millimeter and then he would go to los angeles and do the narration and on the audio wow so yeah so you but figured was, you didn't, yeah, you didn't all, need to do much to get started in other words there was the, the barrier to entry you realized was in fact low it was very low i mean the, the barrier was I needed to learn more about those cameras I saw, that I saw him use. I mean, I, I, I took one film class. It was a film history class. And this actual filmmaker came and uh, lectured to us, Richard Searles in Maine. And afterwards, I went up to him because I didn't know the answer. This. I go, how do you put the sound on the, the 16 millimeter film because it didn't make any I couldn't I didn't know how they did it you know and he explained to me the process you know it's just it's learning because I was determined to make a ski movie but I didn't know anything about the, the cameras and and the 16 I knew a little bit because I'd seen Dick and I had I had a Super 8 camera as a kid so we, I shot tons but you know those were cassettes you sent off and they got developed and you didn't you know there's no Filmmaking. Ski insiders know that you didn't shoot every 
bit of footage for some of your legendary films alone that in fact at that time as as well known cinematographer as yourself named Bruce Benedict who worked with you talk about how he helped you in your early days funny uh, Bruce was coming to the ski hall of fame thing and he was the first person on my list of I had my whole comedy routine of people I was thanking you were on that list too Jackson but Bruce was first because he was a, a, a very established still photographer. He published in Powder Magazine all the time. He went to the University of Kansas and studied photojournalism, and he had a great eye. You're, you've either got a great eye or you don't, and Bruce had a great eye. And ironically, Jackson, you might not know this. You know he's colorblind? No. Yeah. No, no, no. Well, because He said, well, I, I know what red is, but he said everything's shades of gray. So for Bruce, the whole world's black and white, but within those shades of his, of division that he does have, he saw it as uh, this whole you know luminance grayscale, which was interesting. But but great photographer, and I, I I remember when he started tagging along shooting stills, and I knew why because it was we had girls. They turned out to be quite an attractant, don't they? But it was such a fortunate thing for me because. Both he and Rod Walker were on that first couple of movies, but the stills were so great from the droids, my very first movie, that Neil wanted to use the pictures like so bad because they were really different, and he loved the idea of supporting the Rebel film crew. Yeah, so we had this 12-page spread in Powder Magazine about the droids. Yeah, that was and a I huge score for you, wasn't it? Yeah, it was, but it was totally because of Bruce's pictures, still pictures. Because all of a sudden I've got a 12-page spread and powder to go now to sponsors. Because I didn't get any money, I just got product for, for it, when did, When did you hook up with your Swatch connection? Uh, when we were about 14. Steve was a freestyle competitor, Steve Rechschaffner. He skied Killington, but he was a New York City kid. He was he was terrible. I don't remember him ever placing. <laughs> we had a bad nickname for him, but I'm not going to say because Steve would not like that. You know, he's a big was this big, tall, cool kind of gangly guy. He eventually, this years later, became the first marketing director at Swatch. And in fact, he was going to be at this Hall of Fame thing, and I was going to tell this story because the Powder Magazine spread for the droids was a hundred times better than the movie (laughs) (laughs) and i mean it with all my heart it's true right but that powder spread sure didn't hurt because i went to steve in a year for time weeks for snowman and steve showed his boss and at the time there's only four employees at swatch there's a swiss guy that had come over to run swatch usa and two other people in steve so steve and he's the first marketing director and the whole story of those guys meeting is a whole chapter. But make the long story even longer, Steve shows the droids to Max, who's a skier. He's from Europe. He's sophisticated. He's Mr. Swatch in the U.S. And he says, do you want me to sponsor this? You know, because it was so bad, especially because you know, Max European ski films. And, huh? And Steve goes, Max, you can't think of it as what it is. You have to think of it as what it's going to be. And at this point, Steve had been right about a whole shitload of stuff that Matt, Max may have doubted him on. And so he goes, all right, sponsor me. It was only 3000 bucks, but now I could go to, I think at that point, it was maybe Meineke. I was in that, I was in that boardroom because I was the only one in it with a budget. Steve Meineke, <laughs> our director of marketing, and Chris Hanna and competition services both knew of you. 
And they had time waits for snowman. And that's when I said, who the hell is this? Because <laughs> I loved, I love snowman. I thought it was so clever and so in keeping with sort of a renegade spirit, which I thought was at the heart of freestyle. And it was the heart of freestyle, which was already starting to, you know, get corrupted, if you will. So this was, you know, very authentic to me. And your use of music, even though I was then as now sort of a musical imbecile, I, I recognized as very fresh. You weren't putting people skiing to Mozart. I said, okay, what do we need? And your demand, you know, it wasn't like a yard of bullion or something. No, I think it was like five. Yeah, and product. You needed product more or less airlifted to somewhere. Product. And you needed, right. yeah, you needed some dough. And I, I got a bit of cash. I was just like, oh, dang, I just raised $40,000. Let's go make time waits for snowman. I didn't get money from Solomon. You know, I did. I did. I did. I'm sorry for the sponsorship. So I just watched bits of it the other day. And it's I'm like, oh my God, how freaking bold. You know, it's like, who the fuck did you think? Yeah, you but were? you weren't, what you weren't was sliced bread. You weren't what the other guys were selling. And mm. you seem to speak to it. The other, the other well, guy. Keep in mind, we were one. a bit of a renegade company. We had come into the world of Alpine ski boots and actually shaken it to its roots, becoming the number one worldwide boot brand in, oh, it took us from 1979, six years. We went from zero <laughs> to passing Nordica in dollars worldwide, never mind units. They had many more units, but who cares? We had many more dollars. And part of that was we needed an image. We needed an image that associated with youth and it made us seem hip and not goofy and not overly French, which can sometimes, <laughs> sometimes foreign brands don't fare as well over here because they're like the Festeron brothers, the wild and crazy guys. You know, they think they are talking very groovy. And it's like, well, that's not really how we do it, actually. Is that their real last name? <laughs> but at any rate, this, this was the this was a vehicle to me. I said, okay, this is a vehicle. We we need this. We need to we need to be cool. We need to be hip. We need to get these guys using our shit. Pretty simple formula, really. Exactly. I mean, get iconic skiers right. like Scott Schmidt, Mike Hattrip, and the Great Plake. And all have them wear your stuff and have the best filmer at the time. And you caught magic in a bottle. And you got the Today Show on top of that. Well, that didn't happen. I know, but you mean, the fuse was lit to me yeah. with, with Snowman. Exactly. And then, because Maltese is really good. I love Maltese. It does, there's just, I love it for the humor bits. The secret life of sleeping bags. <laughs> that is so <laughs> hilarious. <laughs> uh, yeah, and then Good to Rat, I sort of detoured. I got a little too far out of the bottle. I mean, action was good, but the movie did not tour well. The one about, you know, Harry Ackerman, the old guy that dreams he's skiing with us. And until Blizzard of Oz, I made all my movies by making the entire soundtrack, including my narration, at the radio station up at BLM in Maine that I still worked at on weekends. So I, I'd sat in, you know, the ad studio and on the weekends and just and built my the whole audio. I couldn't change anything. So I was just pasting pictures on all those early movies to a soundtrack that I could not change. Right. So it was, it was, it was absolutely <laughs> from what they teach you in film school. <laughs> Isn't that wonderful? No, it, That's what it, my partner, Dave Bertone, yeah. says about all my writing. He says, just, you know, just reverse it. <laughs> you have everything that's right in there. You just have it right. backwards. That was another great learning tool. It was unconventional, but honing the ability to make it work. Because you don't have a choice. You have to find something visual that makes it work. Because I couldn't change the audio. It was not until Blizzard of Oz 
that was the first movie that I got to do a offline edit in my home. Cause I, I could afford to have two, three quarter inch machines and two monitors and a controller. And I could build by that point, we, I'm, you know, I'm making, having this, when we transfer the film to one inch video, I have three quarter inch window dubs, they were called because they had time code in the window. So I could cut together and do a very firm edit of what I wanted to then go into the big studio and pull off. But the first time I had that capability was Blizzard of Oz. And I think that's the big difference with the continuity of this story is because I, I actually could change it, made rough it and showed them to friends. And it was right. at this dramatic juncture in the narrative that our transmission was suspended once again by powers beyond our control. But it's a suitable place to pause, for we are on the cusp of the Blizzard of Oz. Stumpy has just created the first opportunity to massage his script as he goes along, for he has control over his soundtrack for the first time. We'll pick up this thread when we resume the Stump Chronicles Part 4. This has been Real Skiers with Jackson Hogan. Thanks for listening.